Security Ledger podcast reach an audience of thousands of information technology and information security professionals. If that's an audience that you'd like to reach, think about becoming a Security Ledger podcast sponsor. To find out more about sponsoring our podcast, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sales. Hello, this is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 172, with an election year upon us, the media's attention has swung back to the vexing issue of election security. Given the documented interference by Russia in the 2016 presidential election and anomalies in the performance of electronic voting systems in both 2016 and 2018, both government and watchdog groups worry about foreign actors tampering with U.S election results in crucial districts come November 2020. But efforts to secure voting systems at election time can only go so far, according to research released this month from the firm Interos, which found that one-fifth of the hardware and software components in a popular voting machine used in the U.S. came from suppliers in China. Furthermore, close to two-thirds of the components in that voting machine came from companies with locations in both China and Russia. The study comes as the U.S. government and the Trump administration are cracking down on the use of hardware and software from countries with a history of spying and espionage within the U.S. That includes hardware giants like the Chinese firm Huawei. In this week's podcast, we sat down with Jennifer Basigli, the founder and CEO of the firm Interos, to talk about the link between America's voting infrastructure and countries with a history of trying to subvert democracy. We also talk about the larger issue of supply chain risk, which Basigli says, goes well beyond cybersecurity. To start off in this podcast, I asked Jennifer to tell us a little bit more about herself and also about Interos. Jennifer Bisegli, CEO and founder of Interos. Jennifer, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you. Jennifer, tell us just a little bit, if you could, about Interos and what uh, Interos does. Sure. So um, Interos is really focuses with our customers on helping them understand truly who they're connected to in this global economic ecosystem. And so if you think about it, most companies understand who they're buying from because they have an actual contract or an agreement with that company. But rarely do they understand who is supplying that company. And as you continue down through the tiers of supplier relationships, it gets harder and harder to understand who's doing business with who. And at that point, it creates both risk and opportunity. And when you're talking about risk, Interos looks across five major risk areas, the first being financial. So solvency, again, not just of the company that our customers buying from, but the companies that they rely on in efforts to support our customers. Operational risk, everything from layoffs for businesses in the sub-tiers, as well as other types of um, events that shake other businesses that would keep them from being able to support the companies that our customers are contracted with. Cyber, of course, which we look at not a destination, but just a digital highway of access. Geographic, so geopolitical risk is another big concern, weather patterns, and then ESG or ethical sourcing. And so so that's what we do. We really help our customers understand across five different risks what the priorities are for when they need to focus on those things and apply resources correctly. And who are your customers? 
So we started, the company's 15 years old, and a bulk of our customers are the U.S. federal government from uh, the Department of Defense, as well as several of the federal civilian agencies. We've been at NASA, we've been at Department of Energy, and, and definitely with the Army and the Navy. We also work a lot in the private sector, especially when you're talking about the financial service um, organizations and companies, as well as global manufacturers. So we're talking to you and Enteros because you came out with a really interesting report that we wrote up and covered and other people did as well on an analysis you did of a popular touchscreen voting machine in use here at the United States and your discovery of the um, connections or ties uh, between that machine and suppliers in China and Russia. Just to start, tell us a little bit about the study that you did and and, uh, how you came, how Enteros came to take this up as a project. So as far as if I were to start with the end, the reason we brought it up, it's just part of our normal research calendar. We try to keep up on um, kind of aggregated and global trends that our customers would care about when it comes to global supply chain risk. And, and as far as the study itself, I think it really, the point of it is it really underscored the increasing, the increasing complex nature of supply chains based on the fact that we are a global economy the interconnectedness, especially when you start talking about technology, which changes so very quickly globally, the suppliers, the folks that are bringing it to market change so very quickly, that we really wanted just to start that conversation. That when something comes as, as important as national security or our voting, where there'll be countries and companies around the world that will be interested in the outcome, much as we are from the United States with other countries and companies and their um, voting. But we really need to take a harder look at exactly who the players are. And that was the whole point of the study. So for this voting machine survey or study that you did, you looked at one particular touchscreen voting system. Is that right? We did. And the reason for that is when you start talking about the topic of supply chain risk, you have to actually look at a specific product or service or or partnership that's occurring. If you're just looking at the connectivity of global business relationships, then that's all you're going to see. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. But really, when our customers come to us, they're saying, I'm buying this product or I'm partnered with this business. Help me understand specifically what the risks and the opportunities are. And so we pulled the thread on one, one machine. And uh, just assuming here, because this is the case with most of the uh, touchscreen voting vendors or OEMs, this is a U.S.-based company. It is. Yeah. Um, But what you found when you looked into it was that, in fact, the supply chain for this company traced back, at least in part, to countries like China and Russia. With supply chain, we talk about uh, third-party risk, right? So that would be suppliers. But you, you also talk about kind of the extended supply chain. So talk about when you're looking at the, quote unquote, supply chain for this particular touchscreen voting machine, what that entailed. Sure. And and as I start talking about this, I think the one thing that I hope your listeners walk away from is that nothing that we're talking about today is inherently making these companies right or wrong. It's really just understanding where they're doing business and Mm -hmm. what risks that introduces to, to the voting and to our next election. And so what our technology had the ability to do is that it took, it started with an election machine and actually understood the, to your point, the third parties or the suppliers that made the parts that went into that machine, and then went one more tier out or to the fifth part or the fourth parties, excuse me, that actually made components that went into those finished products that went into the machine. And so we went what we call three tiers 
um, a way to understand. And then we analyze each of those companies to understand what countries they were affiliated with. Okay. So this is, uh, I guess, a way to think of it would be your suppliers and the suppliers of your suppliers. And in some cases, the suppliers of your supplier suppliers, that type of chain really of component providers, right? It is. And we often, we very often compare it to a family tree. So yeah. if you think about it, you will know who your parents are, you know who your grandparents are. But when you start getting to the third and the fourth cousins, you really have no idea what's going on out there. And, <laughs> Ain't that a truth. And so that kind of visualizes it for most people. And these touchscreen voting systems, Jennifer, under the hood, these don't look that different from last laptop or desktop computers. Am, am I right? That's absolutely correct. And and I think that that's why when we started talking a few minutes ago, the whole idea is we really just wanted to start the conversation that when you look at any industry, specifically to your point in the technology industry, whether it's a laptop, whether it is you know a camera, whether it is a voting machine, if it's doing something important for you, specifically from a critical infrastructure standpoint, we really need to start asking the questions about what companies and countries might be interested and are they actually within the supply chain relationships. Okay. So what were the most uh, interesting findings or, or I guess maybe surprising findings uh, that uh, you had from uh, this study, Jennifer? Yeah. So I don't know if it was necessarily surprising, if you will, but the statistics that the analysis came up with is that almost 20% of the components mapped within this machine came from China-based companies and almost 60% of the actual businesses or suppliers within this machine have locations in either Russia or China. Really interesting. I guess in some ways we shouldn't be that surprised that a lot of these components are, come from mainland China, given that, you know, most of you know, the, the, the smartphones in our hands are, are sourced there and the other electronic gadgets that are in our homes and businesses. I, I think if you ask most people, where do you think this thing was made and manufactured and where the parts come from, they'd probably say, you know, probably from China. You're absolutely correct, which is why we're not saying this is a positive or a negative. It's just it's just what the truth is. And to your point, especially when you talk about technology, a lot of it does come from that part of the world. And so yeah. this is true risk management for companies and for countries to take on that says they're willing, they have enough of a risk tolerance to, to deal directly with that company or that country, or that they need to do some mitigations. And mitigations can be everything from um, having somebody do penetration testing on a technology or something more hands-on to actually add some resiliency into that technology before it handles something as important as critical infrastructure. These conversations always sort of get you headed in a direction that that makes most of us kind of wary, right? Like, I don't want to play into this, you know, Cold War style kind of paranoia that can that can take over. On the other hand, I mean, we know from Edward Snowden that, you know, interdiction, is, you know, happens, that uh, products are tampered with uh, by intelligence agencies and services. We've had examples of um, corrupted supply chains, whether those are cyber criminal or, or nation state. So, like, what's the proper level of alertness, awareness that they should have about this problem? And then what are they supposed to do with that information? 
Well, I think that's a really great question. And this is where I go back to a little bit of risk management 101. I think that the first step is, as you just outlined, really just starting to have that conversation. And that conversation could literally, from a company standpoint, start from a procurement area, can be in a supply chain area, can be for the the chief risk officer, but really starting to understand what the crown jewels are from that company or that country who are the companies that they're working with that have access to those crown jewels for what's important? And then what level of risk tolerance that they have? Who are they willing to do business with? And how are they willing to do business with them in effort to ensure that nothing negative happens to their business? Did you guys get any pushback after this was released with people saying, well, I mean, you're, you know, you're saying, oh, just having a, a, you know, an office location, a mailing address in China or Russia makes you makes you suspect. Did people kind of push back on that and say, you know, you're painting with too broad a brush here? So I think that anybody that came up with that point, again, we fall back on we're providing the visibility. It's really up to the customers and to the companies to decide if that's positive or a negative and to do something about it. You know, I know that, I mean, this is something the federal government is wrestling with big time, first of all, because it's become a policy within the United States uh, government to uh, look to limit the exposure of hardware and, and software from countries that we are worried may be spying on us, especially, you know, Russia and China. And we've seen that in a couple instances, you know, Huawei, uh, Kaspersky Lab, you know, over the years. But with something like this, like, you know, uh, electronics components, you know, the supply chain, given that, you know, China is a source for so many of these, and there are some that really can only be made in China. Where does this leave like the U.S. government? Because at the end of the day, isn't pretty much anything you buy going to have some components that ultimately you trace back to mainland China? I mean, I've asked around and most people I've talked to said, you you know, so many of these things, the cameras, the phones, you, you really can't source and build in the United States or even North America. So it's a really great question again. And I think from our standpoint, knowing that we're just the technology that actually provides the insights into who these connections are with and what other companies and countries are involved. I think when you're talking about, you know, where it's where the responsibility is left, um, the U.S. federal government obviously has already made the election infrastructure part of a, a critical infrastructure. So they've already set a heightened level of awareness around it. Yeah. And then I, I think the other thing to remember is that most, if not all, companies have some sort of risk management program already in place. And so what we're finding when we deal with our customers is by providing this additional level of multi-tier, multi-risk factor awareness and visibility, it just gets added to their risk management program so that the government doesn't have to get involved in everything, but industry actually owns a lot of the responsibility and takes on that responsibility themselves. Uh When you um, are looking to trace the sort of provenance of these various components, and then for many of these, you would kind of take the component itself apart and find subcomponents of it and then trace their um, trace them back to their to their source as well. Like what is what does that process look like? How do you even do that? So our technology is actually built on a graph database. So again, think of that family tree. We ingest across about 85,000 different types of data sources, um, about 200 new pieces of information every 20 seconds. That information is ingested into the platform. It fills out that family tree that we talked about. And then our customers are able to access a dashboard, kind of like if you think of Google, 
and how when you actually type something into Google, up pops a list of websites. If you come into our platform and type in a company, a company and a product, up comes a visualization of global business relationships. What types of components did, did you find in this analysis, uh, in this study, uh, tended to originate uh, overseas? And um, were there any that seemed to present a particular risk, uh, security risk to the, to the operation? When we did this, again, we're not here to say risks, anything's risky per the platform. That's really up to the companies that are involved. But from what we looked at from the components, there was a lot of artificial intelligence processors, software, hardware. And to be very honest, if you think about technology, it's sourced from all over the world. So in this analysis, the platform displayed almost 20 different countries that were involved in building the the infrastructure. This is a big kind of, you know, it's a, it's a problem that can be really hard to wrap your brain around. And, and certainly in the short term, it, it would be very difficult for any OEM to turn on a dime and just start, you know, building their product using parts from other parts of the world. And it's, it's not even clear that that would, that would, you know, diminish the risk, right? So how do you, um, how do you advise companies to start dealing with this problem and getting their arms around it and getting themselves to a place where they feel like, uh, you know, they've, they've addressed the, uh, the supply chain risk? So what we're seeing with our customers is when we're providing this level of insight, two things are happening. One is that they're using the visibility that they never had before this technology existed to prioritize what type of risks they take on, the level of resourcing they put against it, and what the mitigations may or may not be. The second thing that we're seeing is that risk doesn't happen in one part of a company, rarely. And there's normally some sort of a ripple effect across the organization. So in addition to prioritization, we're seeing most of our customers, and we deal with a lot of the Fortune 500 customers, are creating more enterprise risk management programs for both internal business risk as well as third-party risk, which is probably the best that you could ask for is for an entire organization to be able to get together on the same page and say, we as a company have this level of risk tolerance. It could be different for different parts of the business, but we as a company accept and understand. And they mm. actually have this communication that's happening all around the level of visibility our platform's providing. Interesting. So the federal government right now, it seems to be in this sort of, you know, wag your finger, you shall not phase where they're sort of saying, you know, don't use, you know, hardware by this vendor and don't use software by that vendor and disassociate yourself from, you know, country companies that are based in these countries because we don't trust them. It all seems very not helpful to me. <laughs> I mean, if I were a CEO at one of these companies, I'd sort of be throwing my hands up and saying, well, what do you want us to do exactly? That's my impression. I'd be interested in your impression. And is there a constructive role that the federal government could play in helping the private sector to whether they're OEMs or, you know, the, the first party you know, customers of those companies to uh, to address this risk, this risk? I, I think having worked with the federal government for over the last 13 years, what we've really seen is the conversation in the folks that are actually executing. So the CIOs and the CISOs and the agencies, the program managers, there's two yeah. things that are happening. One is they're really understanding what we talk about is what, what's the level of risk they're willing to accept in their program or in their technology. And the second is they're actually partnering 
with the private sector. They're partnering with their third parties to help them understand this is the level of risk we're willing to accept. How do we build trust between us and make sure that we work together to provide safety within the federal government? Okay, so if you're like a you know an IT person or a CISO at a at a you know even a small you know corporation private sector organization here in the U.S., you're listening to this podcast and you're like, I've got you know hardware from China and components from China all over my organization, probably in every single connected device I've got. Um, where do I? What do I do? <laughs> Should I be concerned? Uh, and if I am concerned, what's my next step? Yeah, and I think that's exactly the level of conversation that the transparency that our platform's providing starts. And and so, again, we're providing that transparency so that that CISO and that organization actually can understand where the risks lie and start putting business plans around prioritization of what risk tolerance that they have and make the business decisions that you just asked about. I mean, we're a cybersecurity podcast, so we're very myopically focused on cybersecurity issues. But I know you said cyber is really just one area in which your company, you know, monitors and and focuses. Is cyber a big topic of conversation among companies now, or for for you guys, or is things like you know ethical sourcing and and other areas bigger than than cyber right now? I think that depending on who we're talking to in the organization is really what governs the, the the prioritization of the different risk factors that we look at, whether it be financial, strategic, operational, cyber, geographic, which is mm-hmm. why as we're seeing the integration of both a third-party risk approach from an organization across the enterprise, as well as their internal enterprise risk management program, um, cyber becomes one of the five, which is mm-hmm. actually... In our opinion, that's why we actually included it as one of the five, because cyber to us is a digital connection, which impacts how you're maybe you, how you're doing ethical sourcing. You're analyzing who you're doing business with, but they're actually invoicing you electronically right there. Mm-hmm. That brings cyber into that conversation. Sure. So yeah. in a world driven by technology, it's really difficult to separate them, even though, yes, this this research paper came out about the voting infrastructure. And it's one of many that we're putting out this year based on things that are relevant to our customer base in different industries and different um, regions, that this is really about elevating the conversation about not just who you're doing business with as a third party, but who they're doing business with, because we are hyper-connected and that interconnectedness, uh, interconnectedness is not going away. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it and enjoyed it. We'll have you on again. Thank you. Jennifer Bisegli is CEO of the firm in Taros. <laughs>